0: From West Virginia University Press comes middle school teacher turned debut author Nima Avashia to talk about her memoir, Another Appalachia Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place. Nima takes readers on a journey to discover the family and community that raised her as she discovered who she was as a queer girl in the South.
1: Join us for this Laugh Out Loud conversation where we learn what actually goes inside of a pickle sandwich, the spice you cannot go without, and how Country Road is most likely the state anthem of West Virginia. Stay tuned for another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code Genius to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up everybody welcome back to another episode of the vulgar geniuses podcast we're your hosts my name is denny and i am veronica and today we have a wonderful guest joining us all the way from boston we have none other than Nima avashia Nima avashia was born and raised in southern west virginia to parents who immigrated to the united states she has been a middle school teacher in the boston public schools since 2003. Her essays have appeared in the Bitter Southerner, Catapult, Kenyan Review Online, and Elsewhere. Her debut memoir is a collection of essays called Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place. Welcome to the show, Nima. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful.
2: I'm so glad to be here with you both. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming. We're excited for this conversation. We're very
0: excited. We love your book. I love essays. I have a deep um, appreciation for short stories and essays. So to me, this is like, yay. (laughs) (laughs) You know,
2: I feel like it's a funny thing because it's hard to sell short story collections and essay collections. There's this perception that like they're not marketable. And I think it's so weird because we live in a time where like people want to feel like they have accomplished something in a night, right? Like I read a story, I read an essay, I did something. It seems so strange to me that there's like an aversion um, to essay and short story collections. I think I think people are missing out on uh, on a a real real place where there's a lot of need for more more of that kind of writing.
1: I agree. I think a lot of people are like uh, it's not literary if it's not. 900 pages long like, No, no we don't we don't need that all the time like I understand that there are some good books out there that are like mad long but you know we got I... things
0: to do <laughs> to to see. yes also like I get tired holding the 900 page
2: book I'm like my arms are not that strong
0: true story <laughs> so you know to me I always think like if you can like write a very good essay or a short story then that means you can write anything, yeah, because mm. that means you know how to like do all the things. yeah,
1: you're bringing them in, you're keeping them, and then you're leaving them wanting for more. So you definitely did this with with your collection. But before we start talking about all of that, uh, we like to do something um, special. I'm gonna hand it over to Denny. It's you know our, our getting to know portion,
0: okay. <laughs> You I'm ready.
1: You- oh, you that's not a copyright.
0: But- <laughs> Go for infringement. So, um... Question number one What is one spice that you cannot live without, and when can we get a sampling of the Nima's Hindu Hillbilly Spice Company in the mail? Oh, <laughs> I-, I can hook you up. I
2: have oh. spice canisters. Um, I actually made spice canisters of chat masala for my readings, so you can definitely get some chat masala. I can hook that up. Uh,
0: yes, <laughs> see? see, but the- my f-
2: yes, happening. <laughs> Sorry. But my favorite spice is actually, um, it's a spice my mom grinds herself, and it's called Tanajiru. It's in the essay, the spice collection essay. And it's a mix of cumin, coriander, and clove. Um, and I use it in pretty
0: much everything. Gotta have, you gotta have a good
1: spice on you. Um,
0: this uh, this question is a question from a friend. Oh, this is my question. What is a pickle sandwich and why? <laughs> a
2: pickle sandwich is bread and pickles and that's all and it's delicious especially with like wonder bread or like white bread because you know white bread like white bread like wonder bread it has like a little bit of sweetness to it and then you get the real sour of the pickles in there and it's actually pretty
1: amazing okay is there a certain type of pickle that you have to use to make this or it doesn't matter
2: I would use like you know like Vlasic chips like just like in the '80s. Imagine the pickles that were in people's refrigerators. Get those
1: pickles. <laughs> okay, okay. The commercial with the with the
2: they're like neon green, you know, yeah. like they're they're <laughs> like those. That's what you want.
1: Okay, got it. Got not it. bougie, so
2: no bougie artisan pickles. We're not doing that here. <laughs>
0: I make those but we're not doing those in the sandwich (laughs) so you are in Boston right now again asking for a friend um (laughs) she she was wondering if you are a first a Celtics fan and if this is my question and if you still play ball uh
2: I am a Celtics fan um Growing up in West Virginia, you don't really have teams like you have allegiance to to college teams, but there are no professional teams in West Virginia. So you end up picking kind of randomly anyway. And I've lived in Boston for almost 20 years now. So, yes, I'm a Celtics fan and I've got my fingers crossed about this game coming up um, and this series. I'm feeling good about it. Um, And do I still play ball? occasionally not a ton um I was not a good basketball player I don't know if that came through but no I I (laughs) thought
0: you were the I I thought you were like the best I'm like dang it she figured it out y'all it's the end it's the end for you no I was a
2: very very mediocre basketball player I love basketball but I'm not good at it so Yeah. There's there's some value in recognizing when it's time to, like, put the ball away and just watch.
0: No, but nobody would know. In, in that essay, you were the star. Yes.
2: <laughs> For those three seconds, I was the star. It's true.
0: A song that reminds you of home the most.
2: Oh, Country Roads by John Denver. No question.
0: There was... <laughs> I, every time you would mention that in a book, I would go into this like singing karaoke spree <laughs> in my head. And then there was this, we, we read a book, um, the start of 2020. Um, it's by Charles Hieu, um, Interior Chinatown. Yep. And she, he also mentioned that song in there. And then he said that that song is sung by um, this Chinese older men immigrants every time after work. And would they would get like drunk and then you know he said that maybe maybe when they sing the song it reminds me it reminds them of the old country.
2: Yeah, I think I have traveled a lot and it is a weird thing. You can go into a bar in almost any country in the world and guarantee that if you tell people you're from West Virginia, they're gonna bust out with country roads. <laughs> um I've been, I mean, in China, in Ireland, like in india i can count like just all over that song i think there is something about it that it like um it hits people in that nostalgia spot you know yes um and they and i think there's something about it that really elicits that for people
1: especially if you're you know a child of the 80s or you know just had a really con you know good connection because john denver you know when you think of john denver you think of the 80s right that's so- right his hair yeah the The hair hair
2: and the glasses glasses. yes
1: Yes. yeah for me muppet show because he was always on the muppet show that's right
0: reoccurring guests (laughs) they had good taste the muppets yes (laughs) they do what is the best part of being an educator oh the young people
2: um young people are the best part of everything they are just like so smart and so aware and so willing to like be open and learn and ask questions um they aren't done with the world yet they're not jaded um and i think uh, i get a lot of energy from being with them Mm -hmm.
0: that ends our you know getting to know you a little bit Um, (laughs) we now we dive in into your book okay i hope i pass the test yes it was very fun (laughs) So you wrote chemical bonds I um I and then you said I once viewed my father's ethics as the ethics of the community now I wondered if in fact they have been the ethics of assimilation or the ethics of survival so every time I read it I have to take a pause and in my mind it would just rewind the immigrant life that I have lived in this country and how it was um so fucking hard sometimes yeah and After writing this novel, I'm talking to the people about it. Did the meaning of belongingness for you morph into something more complicated than it has already been or have been?
2: That's a really good question. Um, I think belonging for me is this really ephemeral idea, like um, I feel like always in my life, Belonging is this thing that I'm chasing, but I and I can feel it when I'm in it and then it it goes away. Um, and so what's been powerful for me in this process is finding belonging and spaces and places where I didn't necessarily expect it. Um, and feeling those moments of belonging and feeling them in this really intense way. I don't know that it's a way that stays where I'm like, and now I belong all the time, everywhere. I think. That is a challenge of being a woman of color and a queer woman of color in this country is that kind of belonging. i don't I don't know that it exists for us. I wish it did, but I'm not sure it does. But um, you know, like I get these messages from like baby queers in rural Pennsylvania who are like, I read your book and you're my favorite author now. And I'm like, what is happening? Right. Like that's beautiful and amazing and not something I ever expected as part of this process. And like, there's belonging in that there's being seen in that. And there's sort of like knowing that that, that person is reaching out. Cause they also felt seen, um, that kind of belonging, those moments have been really, really beautiful. And there have been tons of them. There've been these moments where I get, like I'm in a conversation with someone who's very different from me, who's a white, straight, cis, het man, who's like, I didn't think I'd have anything in common with your book. And yet, like I read it and I was like, oh, you're like me in all these different ways, right? And there's belonging in that moment, which I wouldn't have anticipated and he didn't anticipate, but like somehow there's like a moment of belonging between us. So I think that sort of like finding those connections with people, I feel like for me is a kind of belonging. And there have been so many of those um, in this process. I think when it comes to like the experience of immigrants in America and like what belonging means and what sacrifices people make to belong and the ways in which sometimes they have to make themselves small or put parts of themselves away. I think those questions around belonging are gonna still be with us for a really long time um, because I don't think America makes it easy for people who immigrate to belong at all. I think they make it incredibly hard and that burden ends up falling on the backs of, of immigrants themselves in ways that aren't fair. And so I think that big question of like capital be belonging, I don't think I've found it and I, I don't know, I don't think any of us have really.
0: Yes, because I'm still searching. Yeah. And, I, and I, I hope like, you know, in the next lifetime maybe, or the next, maybe it'll come at some point. But who knows? But you Harry, know. Harry
2: Condabolo, the comedian, do you know Harry Condabolo? Oh, yes. Right? He, Harry says 2042. 2042 is when the United States. Ah, <laughs> yeah, That's right. So maybe in 2042, 20 years from now. Oh, God. Hello,
0: what are we doing? Let's see, I'll, I'll
2: only be 63. Same. You and me are going to both be 63. <laughs> and I, don't I remember
0: when. <laughs> those pickles we were talking about are going to be in a museum right. in hey you, you better watch out you never know mark, mark this day but maybe belonging will mean something different than does true. now
2: we can hope yes there's always that
1: so when we navigate uh, when we navigate through life uh, people of marginalized majority are constantly finding themselves dealing with the outside world of whiteness within a space of duality. Wanting to be seen, most will code switch to seem more personable and acceptable to their white counterparts uh, to a point where some will double down for a survival state. What ends up happening is that we are still othered and discriminated and at times physically harmed. What was it for you when you sat down to write these set of essays um, and deal with this battle of wanting to truly feel comfortable and exist in a space that sometimes seems to bounce back and forth between acceptance and outright bigotry?
2: You know, I think this is like one of the biggest learnings I had during the writing of this book is like how my parents' understanding of this country is so different from mine And how I think that they experience discrimination as like an individual act against them and how being born here and learning the history of this country, like I have a systemic understanding of those issues. And so I think for my parents, they thought like, if you just keep your head down, if you just don't make any noise, if you don't make waves, if you try to be nice, if you try to get along with people, they thought that they would keep them safe. Um, and safety was a real concern. We were living in Southern West Virginia. There were not a lot of Brown or black people around. So safety was the number one priority. And I think they thought it would keep them safe. Um, and I think for them, they didn't realize until after 9-11 that it wasn't enough. That was the first moment for them when I think they saw the sort of like systems of racism and how they come down on people. Um, uh, because I think for a lot of South Asians, um, that was the first time when like institutional power really turned against South Asian people in this country in the way that it has turned against black people for centuries and turned against Asian Americans in many ways for a long time. But I think they felt it most intensely in that moment. I think for me growing up in schools where I was seeing that all the time, like I just, I kind of knew like, it doesn't matter what I do. You don't care. I can try everything. And it does, literally does not matter what choices I make if you're coming with what you're coming with, you're going to give it to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that meant that I sort of ended up choosing to live my life in a really different way than my parents did over time, where I sort of was able to say, like, it doesn't actually matter what I do. So I'm going to be free. I'm going to live in the ways that make the most sense to me, because whether I do or don't, you're going to say what you're going to say either way. So I'm not going to make myself small for you. It took me a long time to get there. But I think that's ultimately what I ended up deciding with this book was like, I could stay shut on these things. They're going to happen to me, whether I stay quiet about them or whether I get loud about them. So what does it look like to at least like take up some space? Yeah.
1: Okay. Taking up that space, man, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard, but it's it's one of those things that really, t- really begs you to have to say you have to get rid of the white people that's inside of your head mm-hmm. because you know you have these voices that's telling you how to dictate yourself to the outside world and those voices did not come from come from within you right and so it's this constant battle that we're having to do in order for us to get to our genuine true north self to work in the way that we know best and that our ancestors would want us to work mm-hmm. best in right. right yeah
2: and i mean that's like i think it's it's like the entirety of how culture like capital C culture works in our country is based on those norms. So I think about like the nat ministry, do y'all follow the NAP ministry, right? Uh, like, I like, I'm like, this is what it means to actually like name that there are like other ways to do this. And that this like grind culture mentality is something that has been forced down on all of us. And we're all doing it because we think It's what we're supposed to do, but there are actually other ways and there have been other ways for a really long time. And there are other ways of being like, I think that's so important to like make that space. I think that she's a gift Um, and just like the visibility of that idea that like grind isn't the only way and grind isn't necessarily the right way. Like um, I think for me, it's kind of a revelation, right? It's like somebody really laying bare how white supremacy culture shapes all of our lives whether we're white or not like it is shaping the way we experience this country the way we experience work the way we think about our own identities and our value like do we have value if we're not working all the time Mm -hmm. there's a lot to unlearn there um there's a lot of unlearning that I think we all have to do because
0: we've been sort of so trained into these ways of being so your essay the blue red divide it was it was I'll be honest it's like I think one of probably the hardest, maybe one of the hardest essays that I've read in your, in your collection. But anyway, you presented the readers, this is why it's hard for me, the eternal confusion of how you continue, how do you continue to love and respect somebody that you thought accepted you, but when they were left with their innermost beliefs, they might be still completely against you. We have family members and friends that we share the most intimate moments with. And yet whenever we talk about things such as politics, we feel like they transform into this unrecognizable being mm-hmm. that I feel ashamed to be associated with. So I, I always was asking myself when I was reading your essay, how do we cope? How can we keep ourselves hopeful that maybe someday, you know, we can possibly be keep like see eye to eye again. The fact that that was
2: the hardest essay for you to read is probably also because it was one of the hardest essays for me to write. You pick, you pick the, the two hardest to start with, um, which is not unusual. I feel like they're the two people go to most quickly. I think because they're the stickiest, like they're describing a lot of complexity and a lot of hard, hard things to navigate in relationships. I mean, I think this maybe sounds cheesy, but to me, I part of me feels like writing that essay is really important. I think a lot of us are alone. Like it's like, You on your screen, looking at what someone else is doing on their screen, and it just stays there. Right. Mm. And you grapple with that kind of in silence or internally, instead of being able to be like, how do I do this? Like, how are you handling this? How are you handling this? Part of what I wanted to do in that essay is say, I don't know if this is the right way. But like, this is how I'm handling this right now. This is how I'm trying to make meaning of it. This is how I'm trying to find empathy and trying to hold this person and say, I'm not gonna cut you off, I'm gonna take space. We need space, but like we can have space and not say like, never again will we ever see eye to eye. I, I do think like a big part of it is like the the polarization is on purpose. I think that politicians are really invested in keeping us polarized and in making us focus on the things that are different about us instead of talking about the things that are similar. And so the the only way through polarization, I think, is narrative. I think it's storytelling. I think it's using stories to connect with people. Like, how do you stop being at the polls? You got to get closer together. And how do you get closer together? You get closer together through story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's how we build with each other. That's how relationships happen. That's how we connect with each other. So I do think like, it's not the easy, it's not like an easy solve, but I do think the more we talk about it, the more we can sort of like surface and say like, here are the hard things and like, here's what we're doing about them. I think the other thing that I tried really hard to do in that essay is to really dig, to think about why. Mm -hmm. Like, why have we ended up in such different places? What is it about my experiences relative to his experiences that is causing us to be so far apart from each other? And that why question and the really digging in and digging in and digging in and around it is again, not something that I think Is being encouraged by media right now. Um, We get these like real flat. Oh, they're racist. Oh, they're sexist. Oh, they're this. Oh, they're that. And it's like, yeah, all those things are true. Sure. And what's under them? Mm -hmm. Where's it coming from? Why is it happening? Because if we don't figure out why any of this is happening, we're never going to get through it. We can't. So I think the more we like keep asking ourselves that why question of like why why is it this way? And in the case of of Mister B, like. The place where I grew up is in terrible shape now. It really is a struggling place in a way that it wasn't in the 80s. And he's lived there through that whole thing. So he's seen it not be a struggling place. And now he's seen it become a place where people are really struggling. And no politician, Democrat or Republican or anything in between has offered any solutions that have meaning for folks in Appalachia and in the Belt and a lot of parts of the rural South People have been struggling for a really long time and they're not seeing answers. That's gonna make you angry. Yeah. Um, and and so I I have empathy for that anger. Like, I feel like, what does it look like to implicate like the systems and the leaders who are creating the situation as opposed to sort of like laying all of that blame at the feet of individuals is the thing I think we have to figure out how to do.
1: I wanna um, go back to talking about chemical bond and not only chemical bond but just chemicals in in general Uh, you seem to have like this braided uh theme of the dangers of chemicals throughout most of your essays in in this book talk to us about incorporating this theme of how this corporation's presence in your family neighbors and outside communities lives were affected not only by their existence but also by their demise and it being gauged on uh, which you can measure the levels of destruction and disruption those chemicals cause within those relationships.
2: Ooh, yeah. So, in the town where I grew up, chemicals were what was giving most people work. Um, and chemicals, in a lot of ways, was seen working in the chemical industry was seen as a step up from working in coal. It was safer than working in the mines, right? And this was union work that you could get with a high school diploma and you were going to end up with a pension and you're going to have benefits and you would be able to basically live a pretty middle-class existence um, because of the chemical industry. So like on one hand, the chemical industry is what's feeding people. It is putting food on their tables. It is putting paychecks in their pockets. It's putting a roof over people's heads. And at the same time, those same chemicals are destroying the environment. They're poisoning the water. They're poisoning the air. They're poisoning the land, like the groundwater. Like everything is being poisoned, right? And I think this is a this is not just an Appalachian story. I think you can see this in a lot of parts of the United States where um, where people in small places are in this really complicated relationship with industry, right. where it's like we need this thing because this is the only thing that's keeping food on our table. And we also know this thing is not good for us. Um, And ultimately, this is actually another one of those situations where it's like, well, where do we look right now? Do we implicate the people who are working the job? Or do we ask the questions of like, why won't government regulate industry? And why, when industries are like, oh, the people in this place, they're asking for too much. They want us to clean up the water. They want us to clean the air. They want us to have more safety regulations. Like, why are we letting those industries bounce and go to Mexico and go to China and go to other places and pollute their air and pollute their water and exploit them now instead of saying, well, hold up? Like, these practices aren't okay. You want to make the things you want to make? all right, but we're going to make you adhere to certain standards. And we're going to make sure that you do these things in ways that are ethical and that protect the natural environment. That thing never happened. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, yeah, you're here and you're doing your thing and we're giving you lots of tax breaks and you're, you're polluting and whatever. And then, oh, you don't want to be here anymore because people are making too much noise. Okay, you can go. It's fine. Um, that, that there is this really intense way in which I just feel like people in places like the place where I'm from really have been abandoned by our government where it's like, Oh, you you can't make noise. Right. Mm -hmm. Don't make noise. Um, Don't complain. Be happy with what you've got. Right. Mm -hmm. And now those industries are gone and nothing's replacing them. Um, If you're working in West Virginia now, what are your options? You're working at Walmart, you're working in government, you might be working in a prison because we keep building lots of those. Cause that's mm-hmm. that's the new money maker is you build a prison and that brings jobs, right? Never mind that you're filling it with your family, but okay. Mm-hmm. Um again, those are all policy choices. Um, you know, what would it look like to say, hey, we could pivot from chemicals and coal to green energy? We could do that, we could train people here, we could build up these industries. Like you could have those kinds of solutions, but they're not being offered. Um I think, I, th- I think it's a, it's a very, very complicated feeling that a lot of us who grew up in that space have, um, cause we know what it looks like now, what, like there aren't jobs now. Right. And that's not a good thing either. So it's like, how do you hold that the thing that's feeding you is killing you? Yeah. How do you make meaning of that? Um, and, and, and I think for our, my, my parents' generation, like it just was, their focus was on feeding us, Right. So like they, they didn't let themselves think about the killing us part because they couldn't. Yeah. Because they just had to focus on feeding us. Like there was no safety net for my parents. Right. They came, there was nobody here who had their back. There was no safety net for them. If they failed, that was it. Right. Um, so they, in a way it's like, I think your brain blocks it. Like your brain doesn't let you get further than, than like the immediate, like, I need to take care of my family. You don't go to that place of thinking about those bigger questions because you can't, because right. if you do, you won't be able to move. Mm-hmm. You'll just be frozen. So you just, you block it. Um, and I think that that is what a lot of, a lot of immigrant parents of, uh, of my parents' generation, I think had to do. That's like one of the ways in which they sacrificed was to say, we're not going to ask those questions because we just have to take care of you.
1: We had an author, um, her name, Isabel Yap, who was on here. And she had a collection of short stories called Never Have I Ever. And they were based on a lot of um, mythology that exists within Philippine culture. But there was one story in particular that she writes about this festival that happens every year. And the main character of the story is this father that works for this corporation that has been able to create food without having to actually grow it. All of it is made in the factory. And he goes back home after not being there for a long time to for this huge celebration where they make these huge decorations out of this food. Mm. And you're trying to judge like who has the best decoration and whoever goes, that's where you go and you eat and you have this big fest. And what happens is he realizes as he's looking at everything, all of the food has the name of the corporation written all over it. And they're so grateful for this corporation of like making this food. It tastes so delicious. And he's saying, you know, the people are telling him like eat, eat. And he doesn't want to eat because he knows that something is wrong with the food. Right. And then he turns and he sees his son start to eat this. Oh, yeah. And it's this moment of like, oh, my goodness.
0: Like, what have I done.
1: What have I done? What have I? I'm looking at all these people knowing that they're going to be sick, eventually be sick. And all he can do is just sit down. And eat the food with them. And okay. you have this moment of like, this is someone who's like taking responsibility in a different sort of way. But how, in terms of what you're writing about in your essay, of like, it's important for these corporations to take responsibility, but they're so easy to be dismissed because, like, you have the Sackler family who owns Purdue. That's right. pharma who you know just in what i think in september last year the judge said that they are going to not be held accountable of what they've caused this huge crisis across america this opioid crisis and they're wiping their hands clean and have made billions of dollars off of the demise of
0: people right right. and have
2: their name plastered on museums all over this country that are funded by by, by pills that kill. Right. Yes. A hundred percent. Right. And I think my guess is there are lots of people like my dad who work at Purdue pharmaceuticals. Like there are lots of people who are not the person making the decisions, but who are the people who are like, we're not making the decision, but we're part of this machinery um, who end up doing things that I think, yeah, it's, it's it's really hard. Like you're in it, you're in this, uh, damned if you do damned, if you don't kind of situation. And ultimately it becomes this question of like, you know, whose responsibility is it to make, to make corporations or institutions behave in ethical ways? Is it the responsibility of the employees? I mean, that seems like a setup, like, how's that going to happen? Um, your butt's going to be fired before you know it. Right. Like that That's not how accountability works. And yet there isn't any other accountability. Like they have, they have killed so many people and there's no accountability for that. Um, and knowingly, knowingly done it, knowingly had people go and push these pills and say, they're not addictive. They're not addictive. When you damn well knew they were, right? You knew they were. You used one sentence in one study to make a claim that wasn't true. Um, I th- Right. But like, but it is this weird thing where like, yeah, I just, I think it's all upside down in our country. Like who, who's accountable and how, and why, like, I think accountability comes down hardest on the most vulnerable people in our society. I think about this as a teacher. Like when I think about my students who experiences accountability in the most intense ways, black boys and black girls, right. Um, they experience the accountability in the most intense ways and they have been given, in many cases, the least to start with, um, and who experiences the least accountability is often affluent white kids who are starting with the most and then get the most. Um, it's that that thing that happens in schools also just happens like across our country in like every way, um, and it's I do think it's like why I I feel like I try really hard to sort of operate from a place of empathy. Um, with my dad and with just with like all of the human beings in these stories, it's like it's not about implicating you or condemning your choices. Like that's not the point. The point is to understand like, why do we do what we do? Why do we make the moves we make? What are the systems and structures that we're all moving in that make us make the choices that we make? And how do we start to push on the accountability for those systems and
0: structures? Yeah. But it, living living in an empathy though is, is hard. It's very exhausting. And that's why I think like, you know, you need like a group of people or like a community to kind of understand what you're going through and, you know, to kind of push you like you have to see like the reasons why you have to you have to continue to fight because mm. it's always it's easy to be like, oh, something happens, you read something on Facebook and you're kind of like, fuck everybody, you know, yeah. that's like a daily occurrence like. <laughs> If not hourly, yes in the state of Florida.
2: <laughs> yeah, no God, yes. Uh yes. And, yeah, they, hourly, maybe minutely, like oh, I oh yes, you know. Yes. Um uh, yeah, but I think it is where community is so important, you know, like um one of the most amazing reading experiences I had during this whole book tour situation was I read at a new bookstore in New York called You and Me Books.
0: Well, um, yes.
2: Right? It, if you haven't had Lucy and Jason on the show, you should have them on the show. They're amazing. Like literally, you will. it will be an hour of joy. You'll love it. <laughs> um, but that bookstore is, I don't even know if I have words to explain what it's like to be in that bookstore. Like. I've never been in a store where it's like, this is a bookstore for you. Mm. It's for your stories. It's for readers who want stories like yours. Um, I've never had that experience in any other bookstore in my life, in any other place, probably in my life. I'm not sure I've felt that way. Right. And then we're in there and I'm reading and like this whole room of people is kids of immigrants who have lots of the same questions that I have who've all been trying to figure out the answer to those questions by themselves. And now we get to talk about them together and we, and we don't have answers, but like, we can talk about the questions together and there's comfort in that. Yes. And there's like so much solace that you find in just saying, you know what, we all have the same questions. Okay. Well now we're sitting with them together instead of sitting with them by ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think that that is the thing that helps you to keep your empathy yeah. Is when you're not alone it's when you feel like other people are doing the same work you're doing um it makes a huge difference yeah. go go to you and me please it's uh it's magic i, I can't yeah. even i really it's like a magic portal into another
0: world it's like this is this is 2042 i want to live here yes yeah, so we'll, we'll camp out and buy some real estate inside inside a bookstore right. so going into my my favorite essay in this, in this book, The Nine Forms of a Goddess. You talked about all of your Masi, your maternal aunts um, that were goddesses in their own right. I was in awe that they traveled to Cross Lane, West Virginia, for this festival. And I loved every single one of them already without even meeting them. Mm. And I felt your love pouring out while you were talking about them it was evident through the page that you were not afraid to claim the Indian tradition and the culture that you grew up with. You made me miss it, even though I've never experienced (laughs) it. That's how powerful it was. Um, So Jane told you to write with a clear heart and I think you have succeeded very much. How was the process of finding this voice that made you to be able to write the most genuine, and heart-wrenching stories for this book
2: I mean I think part of it is I just had to live long enough um and and that maybe sounds weird you know I'm 43 like a lot of people write books a lot earlier in their lives than I am writing this book um and there are people who also debut a lot after me and I think that's amazing in its own right um but I think part of it was I had to live a long time like I had to I had to give myself enough time with these questions to feel like I was ready to ask them out loud and to feel like I had matured enough in them and had enough perspective on them to not just have it be my internal grappling, but to feel like I'd gotten to a good enough place with them that I could share them with people, right? Because there's like the writing you do in your journal, which is like the figuring out writing. Mm -hmm. And then there's writing you do for a book, which is like, I've actually already figured this out a little bit and I'm going to share with you kind of my like more processed version of this story um so a lot of it I think was really living into it um and I also think that the 2016 election for me was really a turning point um where you know this place that I grew up in that I sort of had spent my whole life being like yeah it's weird I grew up in West Virginia I'm Indian I don't know what to tell you like suddenly Appalachia was like in the news all the time and everyone wanted to blame the whole election on Appalachia and everyone wanted to talk about how everyone in the place that I'm from is ignorant and racist and voted for Trump. And it's their fault that the whole country is going the way that it's going, even though Appalachia has about six electoral votes total. So I'm not sure how we can attribute all this responsibility to West Virginia and Kentucky. (laughs) I don't know how we're doing that, but we have done that somehow. Um, And I found myself getting like really defensive Um, and really angry and I'm in Boston and all these people who like think they're really liberal are saying all this really terrible stuff about my home and people who I grew up with and they don't see the Indian people at all like they're not talking about my family they're not talking about my aunties and I just felt like I, I didn't want that to be an invisible story anymore or like a story that like you tell is like a weird like thing at dinner parties when you introduce yourself but like I, I, like I didn't want it to just be a dinner party story I wanted it to be like no see us and mm-hmm. see this place and see it a lot more fully than you're seeing it right now in the way that it's presented in the world um so I think there's some anger um that got me to that voice too or some righteousness of being like I have a different Opinion here. I have a different version of the story that I want you to know um, that helped me get to the place where I could write really clearly about
1: really messy and complicated things. I'm glad that you said that because you know, like we we mentioned, we're we're in Florida, right? <laughs> and I have a really good friend of mine who is from Florida who moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career and now is in New York. And um, when they come back home. It's usually met with a lot of complaints or even when they're not home, you know, it's just, you know, text messaging, just like trashing Florida and Florida to me is kind of like that family member that only you get to talk trash about and that right. you don't want anyone else to. So when you see it being trashed on television, it's like, yeah, I know we shitty. We got our stuff. Everybody got their stuff. That's right every single state in this country has their thing nobody is perfect Nope. and if we were to hold a microscope to those places then people will see like oh yeah there's more than just Florida man there's every state's got their own person right and I want to fight for my state so much especially it being a southern one at that of like you know showing the importance of like this is our home that you cannot speak to us as if we represent all of those things that are being broadcast on the news it's Mm -hmm. us being this very you know uh horrible place to to exist um but i really feel that especially within your writing when you're talking about your home and this this place that you you hold so dear and you want people to understand like i was able to find myself while i was there you know this place holds a special part in my heart it might be messy but it's still mine you know i'm a
0: stick beside it i'm a stick (laughs) beside it right even though sometimes we want yeah
2: (laughs) well i mean yes right all of that can be true at the same time but i think that there is, is a really weird thing especially living in massachusetts which has such a holier than thou mentality about everything right like i just i i've I'm continually floored by people here's inability to own our shit.
1: Mm-hmm. Sorry,
2: I don't know if you swear on this. Podcast, oh, we're vulgar
1: geniuses for a reason. Oh, that's
2: right. Oh, good. All right. Well, good. <laughs> well, then, then we haven't sworn boys. enough. Okay. So I'll try to add some more in. But, <laughs> um, But people here, like oh, we're not racist. We don't have problems. We don't have this. We don't have that. We don't, you know, and it's like, meanwhile, Massachusetts schools are more segregated now than they have been at any other point in history. Like there's a level of denial up here that I don't understand where it comes from. And I don't know how people are allowed to keep having it, but it's just, I I think it's messy everywhere. It's just a question of whether people are owning their mess or not and whether people are transparent about the mess or not, right? Like, Yes, Florida has lots of things going on. So does every other state. There's not a single state that you can point to and be like, "Oh, they've got it figured out. Like they're they're good." What state is that? There's not one. But some states get held up as the like, "We're gonna we're gonna make you the whipping boy," uh, and 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 I think there's um, I think the question is like, who does that serve? Who's it for? Um, it is not for the people who live in that state. Like It doesn't help people in Appalachia when people villainize them and reduce them to stereotypes. It allows people to exploit them. I think the same thing is true about Florida. You villainize and then you exploit. Um, that's, the, that's the pattern. And who's getting exploited in those places is the people who've been exploited all along. Um, Florida has significant populations of folks of color, also significant populations of gay people, also significant populations of indigenous folks, like all like immigrant folks, everyone, like it's all, everyone's there. Right. So it's like, we create this narrative and then we use it to hurt you. Um, I don't, I don't think that it's for no reason. I think it has a really clear mal intent underneath it, which is you create those stereotypes. And then when bad things happen, people go, well, like, oh, it's Florida. What do you expect? What do you expect? It's Florida. People don't fight for you then because they've written you off. People don't fight for Appalachia. They've written it off. People aren't going to fight for people in Florida, but, th- but we're there. Queer people are there. Black people are there. Brown people are there. So by writing it off, you're also writing all of those people off. And you're you're justifying the harm that happens to them. And that's that's not okay.
0: No, it's not.
1: No, I love this conversation. I feel like I want to go and take to the streets like right now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm be like, Nima, can we grab coffee at some point? <laughs> We're gonna go to like Starbucks and get that turmeric coffee. Oh <laughs> no, <laughs> and, and I'm just like, when well, I saw that, and I'm like, since since when this yellow color is accepted in this institution, I was so upset, but That's between here (laughs) or there. (laughs) Well, it's trash talking about that fucking golden milk. Oh God. I really,
2: really have a lot of deep angst about the way in which turmeric has become trendy after being like the source of so much bullying for me
0: when I was a child. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Like it's giving me goosebumps just Mm -hmm. thinking about all of that. That's a whole another podcast in itself and we can name it golden fucking milk. (laughs) (laughs) I will come back yes we will come back to that so if you got a dollar every time people have asked you have you been saved you're probably fallen by now i often consider myself spiritual more than religious so i understand when you told laura shout out to laura (laughs) um, in a hindu hillbilly elegy to scatter your ashes in pittsburgh how was it navigating not only your own Hindu spirituality, but also this incessant reminder that you live in a Bible Belt state? Hard. I mean, I think
2: that, I think a lot about the fact that because I was a religious minority in a Christian majority place, I ended up really not being anything at all. Like, my my mom trying to sort of like um approximate hindu faith in the context of like a corner of our kitchen or mm-hmm. like in a high school gym it it wasn't enough like i feel spiritual when i'm with my mom but i don't feel connected to hinduism with a capital h like i don't have a relationship with faith in that way and i think it's because it just couldn't it couldn't compete with this sort of like really loud sound of christianity drowning pretty much everything else out, right? And really what ended up happening is being, I was like, I don't want that. And I don't want that. I don't want any of it. Mm. Um, I think that Uh, I think I feel deeply connected to the rituals that I've done with my mom and my mossies like that, right. That for me feels like a space where I'm really connected, but it's because I'm connected to those people. Um, it's the community that I'm most interested in. And a lot of people would say that's true for them about faith in general. I don't think that's an unusual thing, even for people who go to church. I think for lots of people, the reason they're going is because of the community. They find there more than a particular doctrine. Um, but yeah i mean i think a funny thing about me is i've been saved right like i don't know how that happened i don't know what i was doing going up to that altar when i was like six years old but you know i can at least check it off and be like okay i'm covered like I'm covered by the blood <laughs> yes, I'm covered like if 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 whatever happens happens i guess i've got you know i'm all right but uh, <laughs> but that that uh that just tells you like also that like people felt like it was okay to save a hindu kid right (laughs) and be like oh your religion and culture aren't important we got you here we're gonna just do this to you (laughs) yeah interesting to think about
1: how did your mom find out
2: they told her when they brought me home they were so excited came up to the porch and like we're like it's so wonderful nima got saved tonight and my mom's face i remember
0: i was like oh i really messed up whatever i've done here (laughs) good you know sometimes when i read your essays it reminds me of that um tv show fresh off the boat and even sometimes like kim's convenience Mm -hmm. i wish I wish I wish it could be that because I'd be like I'll be like watching your show I was telling Veronica I wish I grew up with you because I'm be like I want like I felt because I felt like I was as awkward and as everything as you said I'm not a sporty I would trip I wasn't either remember (laughs) no the fact that you were in that sports team never made into a sports team okay 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 that's it So, I was just basically you, but in a uniform as well, <laughs> like <laughs> maybe. I was like, I wish we I wish we could have been friends. Like I would you know, you feel so cool, but not really. And then you would have the best like lunch in the cafeteria. Well, I love both of those shows. I think they
2: do a really good job of showing both like the generational experience in immigrant families at Kim's convenience in particular I feel like there are just moments on that show where I'm like oh I know that dynamic like I got you that 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 vibe I understand it um but yeah what you're telling me is you want there to be a tv show of another Appalachia is that what I'm hearing yes, from you Absolutely. All right. from your mouth to Hollywood's ears we'll we'll yes. we'll we'll hope we're, we're we're making this happen okay <laughs> I support it who's gonna play me I don't
1: know but we'll figure it out (laughs) we're gonna find out you never know you never know somebody out there um so you are like a wish of what I have asked for this year my desire this year has been to uh, speak with writers who are from the south And this region of country is oftentimes not looked upon as a literary region, despite some of the best writers, in my opinion, um, claiming these areas as home. Your book speaks to your relationship with the South on a personal level. Will you talk to us about what the South means for you as a writer?
2: It's crazy to me to hear you say that there are people who don't think of the South as a literary place, because I think like all the best writers I can think of are from the South in this country. Um, shoot, come on, bell hooks. What are we talking about? Right? Yeah. Like, let, Let's just let's just put that put that name into the air right now. Um, so I think a funny thing that's happened to me in the process of writing this book is I don't think I realized how much Southern writing was influencing my writing until I was done. And until other people started to talk about my book and put it in relation to books from Appalachia and books from the South. And to talk about how there are these things that are showing up and these ways of talking about community and these ways of talking about relationships that, um, that exist alongside Southern and Appalachian literature. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, I didn't feel like, I knew how to claim that relationship um, because of this sort of only generation feeling of being like, well, we were here and then we left. So does, do I count? Like, can I count? Mm-hmm. And it's like, even though I was doubting that, like my writing wasn't doubting it. My writing was just all surfacing those same things. Um, a big thing I feel like that comes out in the book is this idea that there's this Appalachian writer named Anne Pancake. She's amazing. She talks about this idea of the kinship economy. Which if you grow up in the South, you know, especially if you grow up in the rural South, nobody's coming to save you. Mm. So if you see a need in a neighbor and you have it, you give it to them. Mm-hmm. And if they see a need in you, they're going to give you that thing. Mm-hmm. That is core to how people live in rural places in this country, especially in the South nobody's outside of us so my dad was the first call right somebody was sick they called my dad before they called the ambulance because he was gonna get there a lot faster than the ambulance would that way of being that way of living with one another I think it's just like totally in my writing it's in the story it's this this feeling of like we are really connected to one another and that's the thing that's the most important thing is those relationships and figuring out how we preserve and protect them um And I think that is such a core part of Southern writing um, is its focus on community and its focus on relationship and thinking about how we are made by the people who we're with. Um, But it really is weird because it took writing it and publishing it and it being in the world for me to be like, oh, like, oh, this actually goes, this goes next to this. These things can go beside each other, right? Like Mm -hmm. I can talk about Bell Hooks and talk about the way she talks about queerness And then be like, oh, that's what I was doing in my book. And I would never put those two things beside each other before, but I can do it now. I can sort of be like, no, yeah, queerness is like the way you live. Queerness is the way you see the world. Queerness is the way you question is what my book is. Um, It's all of that. It's all, it's like, not just about who you're in a relationship with or who's in your bed with you, but how do you view the world? Like that way of thinking about queerness, the bell hooks named so beautifully is the thing I feel like I'm constantly trying to get at in my story, right? But I I couldn't put them beside each other until I'd actually basically published the book, which is a weird thing. I, I don't, I think I had a lot of imposter syndrome um That was hard for me in the lead up to this book. I think I had a lot of doubt and a lot of fear about how it would land with people. And so I think it made it hard for me to see where it was going to fit in to the Southern canon, not canon. I don't know, the Southern, not canon, not canon. The pineapple, the canon. But the Southern. <laughs> no, we're speaking in distance, canon. Uh, um, the Southern shelf, let's say. Um, I only realized that afterwards I feel it's, grateful to I, be on that shelf but
1: it's it's gonna be in my canon because I I've gotten to a place where we can create the canons that we want to create that the mm-hmm. you know and this definitely is one of those books that we definitely need everyone to read I wish you know I could round up some teenagers right now and just like hand them this book because it's so necessary for people to be able to find themselves within the literature that they read. And this is why we do what we do here on this show,
0: right? Yeah, and I think too, like when you were talking of like belongingness, I was telling Veronica earlier that, you know, I don't know where home is. Mm-hmm. Like the race is that how you say it? Yeah, race is, it's like, It's a never ending feeling and process for me because the Philippines, like, even though I have family members there, I don't feel like I can call it home legitimately, like everywhere that I go is kind of like in passing. I'm just like, oh, I'm going to be here momentarily. And then the feeling would pass. But, you know, when reading your book, like those essays, when when I was reading the nine goddesses I felt like I was in that circle and I'm like oh this is what home is Mm -hmm. and and you feel it and you feel it in your story every time you talk about the ocean with a coconut my god (laughs) Nima I was like oh yes I understand belongingness in like in little bits and pieces that's right so thank you
2: oh well that um that's medicine to hear um cuz that's that's what any writer i think wants when they write a book is for you to feel belonging in bits and pieces yeah. when you're reading that you'll see a little bit of yourself or feel that like oh i'm here um cuz that's it for me too home is that garba circle yeah. like that's it that's what i think about when i think about home is that circle right and so i think it tells me a lot about you as readers also just that like yeah you got it like you you got that same feeling that i have Um, When I'm in that space, Uh, that's really lovely to hear.
1: So we've come to the part of our conversation that we do with all of our authors when they come on. Um, We like to give you all options. Um, So we give you two questions. And the first one is either you can answer, um, what are your top five favorite books of all time? We know that if you go with this question, that this is not a set list, (laughs) that these are your top five that you could think of in the moment while you're with us or what are your top five books that you want everybody to know that you are excited about that's coming and you want them to to read
2: oh I'm gonna do the first one okay okay all right ready so here we go men we reaped by Jessamyn Ward Mm. Good, good talk by Mary Jacob oh yes i love that (laughs) book. oh my god that book blew my mind um okay that's two i'm like looking at my shelf right now um no but i'm not gonna look at my shelf i'm just gonna think from my head three is this amazing book called southernmost by silas house who's a kentucky writer it's a beautiful beautiful novel actually a lot takes place in florida awesome um four world of wonders by amy nezha kumatato which is a beautiful essay slash poetry collection a drawing. and five uh five I gotta say secret lives of church ladies is definitely in my top five as a book that I absolutely love and a book whose story I also really love which is just this idea that like how could so many publishers not have seen how amazing that book was? Oh my and goodness. Then, what does that tell you about the publishing industry? Like basically is that they're <laughs> blind and dumb. Like, come on. So that book's story. existence.
1: Oh, Eula! shoot, come on. I always, I always equate that moment of it being like that pretty woman moment where you just go back and you're just to the publishing company and you're like, big mistake. You could have had all of this. And now look at Disha. She's out there producing a show that's going to be HBO on- Max. I know maybe oh, she, she can, can make Thompson. another
2: Appalachia. We'll be like, Hey, here's your yes. next thing. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Miss Disha Philia. Uh, that's right. No, but come on. I mean, I just think that book, what that book represents in terms of both like what is right about small press publishing and university press publishing and what is wrong with big house publishing, like what it says about who's trying to tell our stories, who's trying to take those risks to say, we believe readers can handle intersectional stories. We believe readers can, we trust readers to be good readers and to appreciate amazing stories. Like it just says everything. Um, I think about about which parts of this industry trust readers and which ones don't, and which, uh, which are willing to, to, to tell the like best kinds of stories
1: look, this is the last question, I promise. I was just curious. Okay. I'm glad that you you brought up your publishing company. How did you how did that relationship form? How, how was your book gotten by them?
2: That's a great question. Um, Because it's kind of different than it was for Deesha. Um, She has an agent and I do not. I tried to query agents, I tried to do things the way everyone said to do them. Mm-hmm. And Basically, people, agents were like, this is a beautiful book and we don't know how to sell it. Um, And it was like, "Okay, I guess my queer Indian Appalachian messy stories are like not sellable in that world. Fine. I'm going to take it as feedback. I'm going to look at different places. I'm going to go and look at the small press world um, and try to figure out, well, if you're telling me that the stories are good, but you don't know how to tell them, then that tells me I need to figure out who can sell them. Mm. So I started to look at presses that were located in the South. And because I was like, presses in the South are going to know that people like my family were there. That's not going to be weird to them. And they're going to know that there are still people like my family there, that there are lots of immigrants in the South. There are lots of people of color in the South, that those stories are not unusual and that there's going to be people who want to read them. Um, And so then I started to sort of query out and, and I was like, you know, who's going to really know how to tell this story. West Virginia is going to know how to tell a story about West Virginia.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. They're
2: not going to have any doubt in their mind about whether they can tell this story. Cause this is a story about them. Right. Uh, and so, yeah. So I queried them and that was the right sort of gamble in a way. It was like the right thing. So it's, it's a different process in the sense of like, I think, it, it really was for me about getting really targeted about thinking about place, right? How do I, how do I think about place and presses that represent the place that I'm from mm-hmm. or understand the stories of the place that I'm from? Um, and yeah, so that's why I ended up going with them. I mean, at the end of the day, it sort of felt like coming home in a whole other way. Um, right? Like they're the biggest press in West Virginia. And that is a kind of validation that's pretty lovely to have. Yeah.
0: They embraced you and published you. Yeah.
2: And have been like champions. I mean, like the cover of the book, um, that wasn't my idea. That was their idea. Oh wow. Uh, They were like, they made me do this survey for the cover that was like, talk about colors that inspire you. What images are you thinking about? And then there was one question that was like, just if you have any photographs that you think might be inspiring to us, put them in here. So I was like, oh no, I've got this fuzzy decentered picture from 1980 to, to three. I'm gonna just put it in here thinking like, oh, it'll give the designers some ideas. And then they were like, no, no, like, that's the cover. Like, we're going to put your family on the cover of this book.
0: They understood. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of mind blowing. Like, I never would have thought it. Like, I never. And like, to look at that book and see my aunties and uncles on the cover, like, every time it just hits in this way. I don't think it'll ever get old mm. um, looking at that cover.
1: Have the the people who are featured on the book, have they asked for their own personal copy just because the picture is, is on it? <laughs>
2: I mean, it's been so sweet. You know, I was nervous then because I'd given the picture without talking to any of them because I didn't think it was going to be the cover. So then I had to go back and be like, "Um, am so and like make it look like I was asking permission, but it was too late. But I had to like look like I was asking permission. So I was like, oh, they're thinking about using this on the cover. I was so nervous, so nervous. And they were all so lovely and so excited or just like literally were like never in my life did i think like my story would be important enough that i'd be on the cover of a book like that was the response like that was the response and that just i mean i feel like that's like the biggest tribute i could give somebody
1: it yes. is awesome it's a beautiful cover where are you in in, in west it? virginia
2: oh where am i in the picture okay. so my mom is wearing the white blouse and the green pants and she's holding on to my hands i'm the little little in that
0: picture you win you were the tiniest little baby. Yeah, was right. I was teeny.
1: Man, and the legacy that you are living for all of these people and yeah. those that are to come. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you so much.
0: Yes, it means a lot.
1: Yeah,
2: thank you for having me on. This was really a lovely conversation. I'm sorry I didn't swear more. I'll <laughs> do better next time.
0: I think this is probably like one of our funnest, funnest interviews. I really say that from like my heart. Like we like you are so relatable you're I hope you know that you're funny (laughs) like seriously because like when I would be reading this book like maybe that's why I thought like oh this would be like a good like sitcom because Nima is so funny (laughs) is it just me (laughs) it might just be you I don't think I'm that funny but you people are reading this wrong man (laughs) I'm telling you all right now (laughs)
2: <laughs> no there is like in that coconut essay it's sad oh. but it's also funny like it's
0: hilarious you like, know it's
2: like it's both things at the same time
1: oh man but Nima thank you so much for joining us we hope that you will come back and talk to us about whatever we hope that
0: turmeric yes oh yes
1: and the celtics you know yes. after we win the championship let me know jinx my team but you know um,
0: you do live in Florida
1: you know that right I do and my brother who is a huge Magic fan does not understand it and I said I saw them play I think it was maybe 2008 when they won the championship when it was KG and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen yeah the big three and I watched them play and I said this is a team that's Mm -hmm. played right this is not somebody that's focused on one player who has to make all the shots and it just meant so much to me to see something like this and i gravitated towards them i like i really like how they play with each other and that has always been i mean just watching these young people play now is just amazing to me of what they're doing so yeah and
2: uh and their coach is pretty incredible
1: yes Yes, and always.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On that note. (laughs) And on that note. On (laughs) that note. Okay.
1: All right, Nima. Thank you so much. You take care. Okay. You bet. Take
2: care. Thank you both so much. I appreciate this. Thank you so much
0: for being here. Good night. Good night.
2: See ya.